So, Sandra, what's the connection between a shady Swiss art dealer, a Russian oligarch, our boy MBS, the Saudi crown prince, and Jesus? I don't know, Neil. What's the connection? <laughs> a maybe fake Leonardo da Vinci painting. <laughs> what? Yes. So, it's called the Salvatore Mundi, and it's the world's most expensive fake-ish painting. So the image of the savior of the world is now somehow associated with these people? Yes, exactly. Uh, I suppose Leonardo's rolling in his grave. <laughs> Jesus would roll in his too, but he flew out of there after three days, so... <laughs> yes, in his Gulf Stream, just like uh, MBS. <laughs> <laughs> In this episode, we're talking about the unlikely story of a badly damaged painting titled Salvatore Mundi, or in English, The Savior of the World, originally for sale in New Orleans for less than $1,200, which became a certified Leonardo da Vinci original in just a few short years, sold for $450 million to Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Salman. With a Russian oligarch somewhere in the middle, of course. <laughs> of course. I mean, would you dig through enough layers of anything in Europe with an outrageous price tag, you're going to eventually find a Russian oligarch and a Swiss middleman, right? Well, you know the saying about the fool and his money. Yes, I'm familiar. I am the fool. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry. We'll be podcast rich soon enough. Yes, Hopefully. and our boy Eve uh, <laughs> Bouvier will be there waiting for us to help us invest wisely, I'm sure. Yes. So I suppose we should start with the painting, which is really, in a lot of ways, the least interesting part of this story. But we got to explain to people what it is. Yeah, it really is. There is nothing spectacular about it. But at the same time, it's also fascinating, and it has attracted the finest people. It's an image of Christ making the sign of the cross with his right hand while holding a crystal orb representing the celestial universe in his left hand. And the image was common even before Leonardo's time. And there are at least 30 similar paintings produced by Leonardo's students and followers and assistants. So it's not really a rare thing. No, it isn't, but this one managed to take on a life of its own through an unlikely, very weird chain of events. It was lost when Charles I was executed and the English monarchy was, you know, briefly overthrown, but resurfaced in the 20th century and came to American hands from an auction in Surrey, England. Sir Francis Cook, an accomplished artist in his own right, sold his collection of paintings by Renaissance masters gradually, you know, through the end of World War II, up until the late 1950s, to finance repairs to his family estate which had been damaged by bombs during the war. He and Sotheby's art experts thought the painting was a lesser work by one of Leonardo's students, and the final auction price was approximately £45 in 1958. So Warren and many Kuntz, furniture dealers from New Orleans, bought this painting and brought it home with them, but did not resell it. And when they died, it passed to their nephew, Basil Clovis Hendry, who also did not sell it. And when Basil died in the early 2000s, the painting fell to his daughter, Susan Hendry Turo, a librarian, 
and she did sell the painting, along with the rest of her father's art, via a local gallery auction in New Orleans in 2005. Yes, and that gallery in New Orleans did not survive this failure to recognize a priceless painting under the roof. They went through a bankruptcy, and the new owners of the gallery in New Orleans refused to speak of the old business at all. Like, that's how traumatizing, I guess, it was for them. (laughs) I can imagine. And really, New Orleans is one of the few places in at least the southern U.S. that has this art business and culture like the larger cities in Europe do. New Orleans historic preservation people are quite powerful politically, and they are not kind to new people building new things and throwing away old things. So there's a market there for people like Warren and Minnie Kuntz who travel to Europe to find you know, old trinkets and treasures and bring them home to sell to the uh, well-cultured locals. Well, I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense in a way because Louisiana was bought from the French. It was a French colony, basically, right? Yes. And we, yes. we bought it in 1803. So it kind of makes sense why it's still very European and they have this culture of, you know, arts and so on. But Despite New Orleans' history of art and culture, this painting slipped through the fingers of the St. Charles Gallery. Alexander Parrish and Robert Simon, both art dealers from New York, made their living looking for works of art that have been undervalued, you know, by the galleries and auction houses. So they called up the New Orleans Gallery and they bought Salvatore Mundi. At this point, the price of the painting had risen from the 45 pounds that the Kuntz couple paid in 1958 to $1,175 in 2005. And the New York art dealers, Parrish and Simon, immediately they kind of know what they have with this painting. Like right away they know they have something of value. They sent the painting to the world's most notable Leonardo restoration experts, a husband and wife team who had validated the authenticity of other Leonardo paintings. Diane and Mario Modestini. Unfortunately, Mario, who was 98 years old by this time, passed away shortly after the painting was turned over to Diane for restoration. He thought it was from a generation of painters immediately following Leonardo, but Diane thinks it's from the master himself, based on the resemblance of the technique used to paint the lips on the face uh, of Jesus to the similar technique used to paint the lips on the face of Mona Lisa. And I think this is uh, one cool stuff about this painting. It's actually called the male Mona Lisa. So with the painting restored and this knowledge in hand from Diane Modestini, Parrish and Simon solicit a third partner to help them sell the painting, Warren Adelson, also a New York art dealer, but one with friends and clients in the world's most prominent museums. I just want to add something. For some reason, my gut feeling tells me that Mario, the 98-year-old guy, I think he might have had the right idea because, you know, first of all, he had nothing to lose, so he was dying anyway he was very old so why would he lie and i feel like the rest of the people that follow in the story kind of wanted the painting to be true i think mario was probably the one that was the most honest because you know when you're passing away there's nothing to lose but if you're 98 how well can you see you know i mean yes i see that's the thing about this story it's you You can't nail it down it's it's got a life of its own Yes. And look, but at the end of the day, Warren Adelson, uh, the New York art dealer's 
they don't really get anywhere, no one is buying this painting and they are looking for $200 million buyers, but nobody is interested, mostly due to the incomplete chain of ownership history. Like, you know, with art, you gotta have a provenance, right? If you don't have like a very thorough provenance sheet, nobody's gonna want to get involved, especially when you're asking for $200 million. Yes. But, you know, it's ultimately the British National Gallery which helps the painting along on its journey. And after inviting a panel of experts to see it in person, the curator of the National Gallery, Luke Sisson, attributes it to Leonardo and exhibits it at such in 2011. It seems that this is the point where our painting is starting to take on a life of its own, with the greed of people affiliated with it propelling it forward. So, at present, the curator who attributed the painting to Leonardo has moved up to take a few years as the curator of the Met in New York, and then took over the job of director of the Museum of the Cambridge University Gallery after the previous holder of that position took over as the director of the Royal Family's private art collection. So the fame of Leonardo seems to rub off on everyone involved with this painting changing hands. Yes, and look, I mean, Luke Sisson is now one step short of the most sought-after job in his home country for an art curator. So yeah, he has benefited greatly from all of this as have the original partners in the unrestored painting. Parrish, Simon and Adelson sold it to arguably the most dubious character in our story for $83 million. Yves Bouvier, a Swiss shipping company owner who is a fine art dealer, I mean, shipping companies and arts, I don't know, like when you own a shipping company- Money launderer, maybe, fraud artist. (laughs) Yes, yes, the Jeffrey Epstein of the French Riviera. Right, he's been accused of that too. (laughs) Yeah, he's been accused of all kinds of nasty things, and some may even be true, because, you know, I do believe there's no smoke without fire. Exactly. And art dealer is definitely true. Uh, Money launderer, also true. I suppose (laughs) fraud is in the eye of the beholder here. Uh, And the accusation of trafficking now famous girls when they were teenagers is just crazy. So let's talk about Yves Bouvier. He inherited a shipping company from his father, which had existed since the 1850s. It was originally named Natural Transports, headquartered in Geneva. It was rebranded along the way to Natural Le Couture. And since the late 1990s, has concentrated on shipping and storing fine art pieces for wealthy clients. Oh, so he started with like basically a regular shipping company, shipping stuff like furniture or whatever else. During the war, they even shipped like cans of tomato sauce for soldier meals and stuff like that. They shipped everything like a generic shipping company does, yes. And then they went more niche, I guess, right? Exactly. And they only focused on the art pieces. Okay. Yeah, focus on where the money is. So <laughs> Eve expanded this business into the money laundering part by contracting storage facilities called Freeports, which are located on airport property so that these wealthy clients of his could store pieces of art with him indefinitely without having to send them through customs in the countries that they are located in, and thus avoid property taxes. Yeah, I guess it's like the same principles uh, that the um, 
uh, free duty stores in airports yes. have the same exact thing. Yes, yeah. except these are worth a lot more than a Snicker bar. Yes, <laughs> or a fridge magnet. Yes. <laughs> And fine art is particularly well-suited for nefarious billionaires like, say, Russian oligarchs who might need to move their valuables in a hurry to escape Igor and Sergei who are coming after them with a poisoned umbrella. <laughs> yes, which happens uh, surprisingly often. <laughs> yes, and jewels and cash are a theft risk. Gold bars are too heavy and bulky. A painting that you bought at Christie's or Sotheby's, on the other hand, is perfect because everyone knows who it belongs to since it was bought at a public auction, so it's not practical to steal it for profit. It's small and lightweight as well, so can be stored in a small space and moved on your private jet if you find yourself in a pinch. <laughs> yes, it's really perfect. But do you know what you can get for just a few dollars every month without any gold bars or fine jewels? Dubious podcast premium episodes. <laughs> yes, exactly. We do two premium episodes every month, only for our premium subscribers. And you guys can get them by clicking on the link in the episode notes or by going to dubiouspod.com and clicking on the Become a Patron button at the top of the page. Yes, and in addition to the premium episodes, guys, you'll also get all of our public episodes ad-free. And by the way, because we're talking about the art collection of the British royal family, we actually have a really interesting episode about the coronation of King Charles III, currently Prince of Wales. It's a really interesting episode, like a lot of cool information there. So if you're obsessed with the royal family like I am, this will be perfect for you. We've also got another, well, not-so-real Saudi prince to go with our not-so-real paintings in another premium yeah, episode. Yeah, and but... we have a fake Saudi prince episode. It's it's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of episodes there. So I think we already have a good collection for you guys. And tell me more about this painting. Okay, so Russian oligarch time. Dmitry Rybolovlev began amassing his fine art collection after selling his share of the Russian fertilizer company Eurokali and moving to Monaco. Oh my god! I just realized I think this is the same guy that then bought a Formula One uh, company, like Formula One cars, and put his own son. And the Monaco football team, too. Yes, and I think he made his own son like a Formula One driver, and then he was upset when his son was not doing great, <laughs> and he was trying to basically blame everybody else but his own kid. There's a documentary called... Um, Race to Survive or Drives to Survive something on at Netflix. Yeah, I think it's Drive to Survive, yes. Dri yes, and I think this is the guy. This is the oligarch. You yes. know, he's actually <laughs> a pretty good football team manager, though. They've done very well. And uh, apparently the Prince of Monaco is the majority owner of the team. This guy just owns a lesser share, but the Prince is very happy, and they've won all sorts of awards for... Uh, good management of a football team so yeah maybe... of course he's happy when there's money there's always happiness look a lot of people say that uh, money don't bring happiness guys that's bullshit <laughs> money does <laughs> i mean look i'd rather be sad or broken-hearted on a yacht than uh be <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i'm just saying i don't know about you but yeah and this guy the oligarchs you can see him in the documentary he might be doing well with the football team but as far as uh control issues he has a bunch of them and that's very well, obvious like. yes <laughs> incidentally 
Urokali was also one of Russia's top polluters when he was in charge of it. And <laughs> of the river, course. of course it was. And the river adjacent to the company's largest facility was described as, quote, more brine than water. Uh, I mean, of course it was. Of course, this is the thing. These people, the oligarchs, the people who are very, very rich, none of them have done really good things to get there. That's the point. And look, speaking of Dimitri's toxicity, Dimitri's wife, Elena, filed for divorce in Geneva in 2008, citing, quote, serial infidelity. And she said he's been doing this for 20 years. Now, shortly before the divorce filing, a mine belonging to his company had collapsed in Russia, and it was described at the time as the worst ecological disaster since Chernobyl. Now, these, shall we say, unforecast expenses brought Dimitri into the circle of our boy, Yves Bouvier, who might help Dimitri hide his ill-gotten money. And Dimitri had a reason to hide. In the initial divorce ruling, Elena won the largest divorce settlement in world history at the time. The court ordered Dimitri to pay her $4.8 billion with a B. I should have married an oligarch. <laughs> what did I do with my life? I but mean, yes, yes you, you marry the oligarch, you bring him here, I will feed him to the bear, <laughs> and then we will go happily ever after to Costa Rica. Yes, the bear, by the way, guys, the bear is uh, Neil's dog, Callie. Yes, just so you know, she looks like a bear, that's the point, yeah. Yes. She looks like a little fluffy, cute bear. But back to our guy, Yves Bouvier, that's the thing. He was using the profits from his art trades to build more freeport facilities around the world. So Eve would pitch himself to billionaires like Dimitri and offer to procure art for him and then store it off the books so that if he got into trouble, he could simply take his paintings in his jet and fly away to a more friendly country because he had freeport facilities in Singapore, Geneva and another one in Luxembourg. And if not being hindered by lawsuits, he would have another one in Shanghai too, which was planned to open in 2017. But the lawsuits, as it turns out, came from Dimitri and were specifically linked to the maybe Leonardo painting we're talking about. So when Parrish, Simon, and Adelson sold their newly restored Salvatore Mundi, they failed to find a museum to buy it, so they turned to Sotheby's, and Sotheby's referred them to Yves Bouvier. And Bouvier wanted to buy it, but he wasn't planning on hanging it on his wall. He was buying it to immediately resell it to Dimitri for $127 million and a little change on top, which was about $45 million more than he had paid for it just a few days before. I mean, that's a nice profit for a few days of emails, right? Yeah, not bad at all. As it turns out, Eve was doing this all the time. He would tell the clients that he was negotiating on their behalf to buy a painting or sculpture for a certain price when he had already bought it for a much lower price. More brazen still, he was invoicing them a 2% fee on top of the amount he swindled them out of. That's my cat scratching. <laughs> Yes, guys, this is our podcast conditions. This is how we record with the pet scratching and so on. But let's get back to the story. Now, this guy, he was really brazen, as I said, and he was invoicing his clients a 2% fee on top of what he already 
stolen from them, basically, as if you were just a consultant charging a flat finder's fee. And all of this worked great until the press wanted to talk about the lost Leonardo and the news story mentioned the price that Parrish, Adelson and Simon had been paid for the painting. Dimitri knew at that moment that he had been screwed by Yves Bouvier. When the prices were all accounted for, Dimitri found that he had overpaid for all of his paintings by about a billion dollars, and Bouvier had gotten the difference. So Dimitri got him arrested for fraud in Monaco, where Dimitri co-owned a French football team with the prince of the municipality that helps at the police station, I presume. He also filed civil cases against Bouvier in Singapore, New York, and Geneva. So this was a worldwide full legal assault on Yves Bouvier by Dimitri. Yes, and I feel that Bouvier might have also felt that it might go beyond legal because when you deal with Russian oligarchs, you know... <laughs> Watch out for those umbrellas. Yes, yes, yes and doorknob novichok. So, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And look, Dimitri was so mad about the art deals that he decided to sell his whole collection. Every single piece of art he had, he decided to sell it. But by a stroke of luck and good marketing by Christie's auctioners in New York, he was not destined to lose money on the paintings that he had overpaid for. No, he would not lose money. In fact, he would be responsible for the most valuable art sale in world history. So he's got two records here, most expensive divorce and most valuable painting. This guy is a high <laughs> achiever. <laughs> oh, and most polluted uh, industrial site since Chernobyl, that too. Oh, yes, yes, yes. 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 He's breaking so. all the records for the wrong reasons. Everything Anyways, is bad. Yes. Yeah. Christie's put together really a masterful marketing campaign for the Salvatore Mundi. The painting went on a worldwide tour of major cities, including TV appearances in multiple countries, to promote the, quote, last chance to own a Leonardo. Christie's requires 10% of a bidder's maximum bid as a deposit when an auction takes place. And 24 hours before the auction, they received a $100 million wire transfer from the man listed as the culture minister of Saudi Arabia. So this person was putting a limit on his bids of a billion dollars for the painting. And I'll give you three guesses who he was bidding on behalf of. Obviously, it's got to be our bone-sewing boy, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, right? <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, MBS won the painting, predictably, for a world record $400 million bid, and he was also responsible for the auction house's fees, which brought the final price to $450 million. Hmm, that's a lot. I have a question. So, Christie's, sorry, but like I need to ask this on that tour that the painting was sent for people to see it. Yeah. Was that tour the one with that commercial Christie made uh, to promote it where everybody who was seeing it kind of like cried? So they've put this camera, yes. I think. Yes. And I think it was even Tom Hanks crying. And like, was it Leonardo DiCaprio? Too? I don't know. Yes, but Leonardo DiCaprio was paid to participate too. I mean, they will probably say that he did it on his own, but let's presume he was paid to be in this. And yes, yes it's like they didn't feature the painting. 
they featured people looking at the painting and having an emotional reaction. Yes, yes. yes. And it was, look, I'm not going to lie. It was a brilliant marketing strategy because it made you want to see the painting to see if it would have the same effect on you. Is it so miraculous that, you know, it's going to make you cry and like you're going to immediately find Jesus? And, you know, I don't know, but I would want to see the painting after I saw that commercial, right? Right. And I'm not even religious, so I can only imagine people who are religious, they would want to go see. So yeah, very interesting strategy. And I would guess this whole strategy worked well for Dimitri and it appeased him, right? And took some legal pressure off of Yves Bouvier as well. Yes, but he found a new thing to be in the tabloids about. Apparently, there was a (laughs) controversy back in 2010 (laughs) over French professional football players soliciting underage girls. Uh, I mean, you keep telling me to uh, get over Jeffrey Epstein, but around every corner is Jeffrey Epstein. (laughs) So, except in this case, the man selling the girls was a former DJ who got himself onto the equivalent of American Idol on French television. His name is Abu Mustade. The two football players from the French national team Frank Ribery and Kareem Benzema were acquitted, but Mustaid was convicted of sex trafficking minors, even though the age of consent in France is a rather generous 15 years old. Uh, are you sure now in 2022? Yes. Ooh la la, c'est quoi ton problème? <laughs> The problem is that (laughs) prostitution requires both parties to be 18 years old. So the problem was not that the girls had sex with football stars, but rather they were not old enough to consent to a business transaction. I mean, look, I'm that just infuriates me. There are so many wrong things with that on so many levels that I don't even know where to start. So we're not going to get in there. Like we're talking about children. Okay, so if they're under 18, they're children. So uh, I don't know. It's just very disturbing. So let's move on. So basically, the conclusion is that Yves Bouvier, this guy, he's so shady and he's involved with so many nasty things, including, you know, pretty much... I don't know, child rape or how do you call it? Yes, I don't know. Like, yes. Pedophiles and st- Yes, let's not. Ugh, I don't want to talk about it because it gets me mad. So in this case, a new witness has emerged who claimed that our man with the art plans, Yves Bouvier, hired the same girls to entertain a Swiss tax official on his yacht to avoid tax evasion charges. Like this guy just gets worse than, I, I mean, I don't, ugh. There's sketchy indication of all of this being true. It's only in the tabloids as of right now. But in any case, it's a story and, uh, you know, it's Yves Bouvier just finds his way into the headlines. I have a that it might be true, you know, because it's, I don't know. It like... seems true to me. There's... <sighs> The most concrete rumor I can find is one of the tabloids says that there are text messages entered into evidence in which Eve is texting one of these girls who was also involved with the football players. So I don't know. Nobody's for sure yet, but 
It is uh, quite the story in the French tabloids. Yes, and speaking of disturbing stuff and speaking of problems, MBS was not entirely happy with his art purchase either, apparently. So by this point, Mohammed bin Salman bought the painting. He wasn't really happy. He also tried to broker a deal with France in which the Salvatore Mundi painting would be displayed alongside the Mona Lisa for Leonardo's 500th birthday exhibit at the Louvre, but the French art curators politely declined. So, MBS took his toy and went home. Rumor has it that the painting now lives on his yacht outside of everyone's views. And by the way, guys, that yacht is really something. But what I really would like to talk about, Neil, really small digression. Do you know that MBS also bought the world's most expensive chateau? Yes, I saw something yes. about that while reading up for this episode. Yes, it's the Chateau Louis XIV mansion, Louis XIV, uh, near Versailles. And it's basically 50,000 acre of property. And it is, I, I will have to admit, I thought this would be a tacky idea to build a modern palace, but it actually is gorgeous. But what's interesting about it, well, it has a snow room. Like, I mean, I can't describe. It has like a whole set of amazing things inside. The architecture is beautiful. But the most interesting thing about uh, the Chateau Louis XIV mansion is that, look, it was modeled on a 17th century French castle and it really does look it, but it has all the modern amenities and some really amazing features. But what's actually really, really striking and I didn't know, guess who built it? Emad Khashoggi, the nephew of the late billionaire arms dealer Adnan Khashoggi, who is the cousin of late Jamal Khashoggi, whom MBS actually had cut into pieces and sent back to uh, Saudi Arabia in uh, diplomatic pouches. That reminds me, there was a quote this week in a news story, which I saw on Twitter, that not only is MBS sitting in their house in France, at least some of the time, uh, he has also pressured this relative of Khashoggi to say that if Khashoggi were here, he would uh, he would forgive MBS for his murder. That's insane. <laughs> that's just that's just <laughs> insane. The nerve of these people. And look, what I was gonna say about this castle, basically mansion, whatever you wanna call it, it's gorgeous. But what I like is that it does not look kitsch, right? So usually when you try to build something modern that looks like something old, it's kind of kitschy. Well, this one, I have to admit, I don't know what architects they paid and what are, I'm guessing the best in the world, but it is magnificent. And I mean, they have an area where you are surrounded by sea, basically, and you have all kinds of underwater marine life. They have the snow room where like, if it's hot, you can go have like a mulled wine in the snow room and it snows on you. It's insane. It looks gorgeous. It's I don't know. It's just gorgeous. But yeah, back to the story. What's next? So, of course, MBS comes out okay always. And Dimitri came out okay as well. His divorce settlement was later lowered to half of $1 billion instead of the $4.8 billion. So he got off a little lighter, too. Yes, but I guess when you have that amount of money, because these people are not just rich, they're filthy rich, right? Like, I guess when you own that much money, does it really matter if half of it goes away? Like, you're not even going to feel it, right? I don't know. 4.8 and... is quite a number. <laughs> <laughs> uh, back to the, you know, the underage girl scandal. If we can find anything positive is like, for example, one of the most prominent girls, now a grown woman who was 
taken advantage of. She actually made a career and she has been starring in a couple of films and she has her own upscale lingerie brand, which seems to be doing well. So that's a positive something coming out of all that drama and, you know, tragedy, basically. Yes. So I suppose, oddly for us, uh, this does not all end in uh, hurt feelings and tears like our episodes usually do. <laughs> so, yeah, besides the girls, if we only strictly talk about the painting deal, nobody really lost, right? Like everybody won, everybody gained something out of it. Well, maybe except for the New Orleans auction house, but they have no one to blame but themselves for missing the rare treasure under their noses. If the treasure is actually a treasure, but is it really? <laughs> I don't know. See, this is where we're going to debate. So I think looking at the painting. Oh, and by the way, guys, we're going to as soon as this episode is online, we are going to tweet out a photo of the painting before restoration and the photo of painting after restoration, one near each other so that you can look and see while you listen to this episode, maybe. So it's going to be on all our social media at UBS Pod so that you can get an idea of what we're talking about right now. And as usual, so I'm not going to uh, proclaim some bombshell theory because I don't believe in such things. I don't think there is one. I think that based on what... Diane and Mario, the two Leonardo restoration experts, thought of the painting, I think it's probably likely that he worked on at least part of it. And I think it's equally likely that a significant part of it was probably done by some of his students or assistants. You know, like we said, these were very commonly painted images. There were at least 30 variations done by his students and assistants for other commissions when he was alive and shortly after his death. So I don't think it's unlikely that he painted part of it, but there seems to be this fascination with people, you know, thinking that they must know whether he absolutely did this well, or he absolutely did not. When in I mean, I identify with those people, Neil, though, because look, this is the most expensive painting in the world, right? And it has been presented as an original Leonardo da Vinci. It's the male Mona Lisa, right? So I do want to know, is it really? Because the point at the end of the day is... I would understand if it was presented like Leonardo had some input in it, right? Because in his atelier, he had like a bunch of apprentices and he would help each of them write and direct them. Right. So if this is a painting out of 50 paintings, it's a different thing than if it's one of a kind Leonardo original, right? So it was sold as an original, but from what I understand, Christie's at the auction kind of like skipped some steps and cut out some of the wording that was previously used, which would have led buyers to think it might not be original. So they kind of like broke the rules a little bit. And look, even the two first experts, the husband and wife, one of them said, yes, it's original. The other one said no. So from the very get go. <laughs> and at the end of the day, it's 500 years. And, you know, they're just not going to know. So I think what we know for sure is that Diane is very talented. Because if you look at the pictures side by side, you know, what they started with was very rough. I mean, there was significant damage. There was a crack down the middle. Yes. Leonardo painted on wooden panels. He did not paint these on canvas. There's a big crack down the middle of the board that it was painted on that had to be repaired. 
and somebody else had tried to repair the crack and they'd done a bad job and they did more damage to the painting while trying to fix the crack. And so I think for sure Diane is very talented in terms of restoring paintings. And it seems like out of all these people, she's gotten the least credit for her work in all of this. Well, I mean... For obvious reasons, because they don't want her name to be all over this painting when it's trying to be sold, because they don't want people to know how much work was done. It's supposed to be a Leonardo, yes. yeah. And also, like, I don't know, I mean, I guess from a technical perspective, she does have the talent. On the other hand, a lot of experts are saying it's been grossly overpainted. And look, even if you look at the hand that is holding the orb, in the original painting, I can literally see a very nice, natural, discreet shade on the fingers. And then in the restored paintings, it seems like very pronounced, which I don't like. I don't think that was the intention of the artist. I'm not an art dealer. I, like, I don't know. I'm not an art expert. Look, she did a great job. All I'm saying is that there is still a lot of suspicion. Is this painting really a Leonardo? Most experts, I guess, would say probably not an original. Leonardo had something to do with it. You know, it was probably one of his apprentices who actually painted the original picture. And there is something about it. So part of the experts who think this is an original, they think that because of the pentimento. What it means is uh, the savior's right hand, they discovered in a painting something that was in a different position and then the artist changed it like a finger or the eye was looking a different way. In this case is the thumb of the savior's right hand. And apparently in the original sketch, the finger was in a different position and because they found this pentimento they think it's original because only the artist would have changed the original sketch so maybe leonardo did the original sketch of the painting and then an apprentice continued you know that could be the case but we don't know or maybe the other way around maybe the apprentice started and asked him to look and say what do you think and he's like oh no no you got the hand all wrong oh yeah Here, let that me actually fix it makes for more you. sense you know? yeah so it could be the other way around, too. And, you know, that was one of the things brought up in the documentary. One of these uh, more generically, I suppose, Renaissance art experts was saying that, oh, well, there's no way he would have started painting on a wooden slab that had a knot in it, like a knot from a branch in the tree, which is what eventually caused the crack, they think. But that is wrong, first of all. I don't know about Renaissance art. I know about boards because I have rebuilt a historic house, board by board. So let me tell you about boards. Here's the thing. <laughs> Here we go. Brace yourselves, guys. <laughs> if there's a knot on one side of a board that is otherwise very nice looking and the knot does not go all the way through, then here's what you do. You put the knot on the side that gets the paint and you send it because that's a good board. And... I'm sure Leonardo did exactly the same thing in this case in particular, because as we said, this is not some rare original concept that he's doing. It's a one-off for a commission and there's lots of others like it. So even if he did this, it was purely for money. Somebody wanted this particular image and he said, fine, I'll go get a board tomorrow and we'll get to work on it. And it's not, something that he would have put the utmost care into because it was just day-to-day -day work so yes he was not painting the Sistine Chapel like you know like this was yes. 
This yeah. was not a rare treasure. This was just a commission job. And But I do like how you <laughs> compared yourself in a way to Leonardo. I'm like, well, like because you're building homes, like you know how to do that. And, well, you know, he was, I mean, I love that. Well, trust cool. me, no, but that's uh, a good example because it, people need to understand that the time this painting was commissioned, I guess, by everybody who could afford it, it was like a fashionable thing to have in your home. So basically for the rich people of Florence and whatever, this would be like the new iPhone. Do you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like a unique one of a kind one single painting there were many 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 of these uh salvator mundi paintings being commissioned yes and i think also people put too much faith in these marketing plans of auctioneers and all of these things as well i mean here's where i'm coming from technique can be learned and I think people get too wrapped up in taking the word of an auctioneer who tells you that a Renaissance painter was a rare genius. And in fairness, okay, you know, in Leonardo da Vinci's case, yes, he is a rare genius. I mean, the man drew a helicopter in a 16th century sketchbook. So he is a rare genius. Yes, in his case, this is true. But where the rubber meets the road in terms of creating a painting it comes down to technique and the technique can be learned clearly because Diane and Mario Modestini learned all of his techniques over a lifetime, but still they learned them nonetheless well enough to do extensive repairs on Leonardo's paintings. So could they do this from scratch? Probably not. But can they take something that exists and reproduce his techniques well enough to repair it? Yes. So technique can be learned, clearly, because he had students as well, and their paintings are valuable, too. So to some degree, people are paying for a name. Yes, that's what they are actually paying for. Let's be honest. If this painting was, uh, let's say, marketed as being painted by uh, Neil and Sandra, do you think MBS would have bought it for $450 million? No. The only reason it got the attention, it was because it was marketed as a Leonardo da Vinci. Yes. And the same goes for the paints. I mean, with modern scientific tools, it's relatively simple to find out the composition of the paints, which is a big part of all this. So this is my last little bit of uh, useless architectural wisdom, but... When I was working on the old house I bought years ago, that was actually what I did. I went and found a Renaissance paint expert in a university to talk to me and a few other people on a random architectural restoration forum about paints because we had similar issues to deal with. It was, you know, why are old paints better than new paints? Why do they last longer? So we got this guy to talk to us about how did a Renaissance artist make paint that would last for hundreds of years. And he explained it all to us. And they were not rocket science because, well, Leonardo had a helicopter, yes, but he did not have rockets. So it was just common tools and common uh, practices that were passed from generation to generation that they improved gradually over time. And all these things can be learned. So... I yeah, don't know. I think I in this think... case, I, so I'm I'm a little more optimistic about the painting, but I do think that the German expert that was interviewed for the documentary we're talking about uh, did have a very accurate uh, assessment in that uh, 
the painting is better now than it originally was, and it's better because of Diane Modestini. That much, I believe, is true. Yes, I mean, look, the original was, was in a really bad state, so obviously the painting looks better. Now, I just, I'm going to choose to trust the Louvre experts, because if there is one authority on art, it's the French, and the Louvre especially. Like, if the Louvre experts refused to uh, have this painting hanging there near the Mona Lisa and being there in an exhibition, I think we can really read into that and not even read into that. They tested it, they looked at it, and they didn't consider it, you know, original enough, so to speak, to be presented as an original Leonardo da Vinci in the Louvre. So to me, that's quite a statement. Do you, you know what I mean? To that's saying though. a lot without saying anything. So refusing to have this painting in their museum, that's saying a lot without saying anything, but it's beautiful. You know, it's a very interesting story. And another thing that I like is these paintings, if you look really closely at the Mona Lisa and at the Salvatore Mundi and make what you will of this, these are very androgynous figures, actually. Yes. I don't know. Think about it. Look at it. Could be a guy. Could be a woman. And I think, you know, painters back then liked to hide a lot of symbolism and a lot of secrets in their paintings, a lot of meaning, and just very short. Like, look, the creation of Adam by Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel, because we were talking about the Sistine Chapel earlier, if you look at it where God touches the man's finger, right? The two fingers touching, everybody knows that. If you look at God, he's standing in a section of the human brain. So Michelangelo, I guess I need to tell everybody that, you know, God is, we made him in our image. He didn't make it. It's very interesting. Art is, has a lot of secrets. That's what I like. But moving forward, I think the Salvatore Mundi is a fascinating painting. I would want to see it, okay? Original or not. I would want to see it just to see what the fuss is all about in reality. In any case, it pains me to know that Bill Gates owns the notebook with the helicopter drawing in it. I feel that all this amazing art, all the things that are unique in the world, made by the biggest artists and musicians and painters and sculptors and all this stuff. I think all of these should be in museums where everybody can see this is for all of us. It's like humanity's most treasured and most important property, so to speak. So it should be there for all of us to have access to it. And when these billionaires have all these amazing paintings tucked away only for their eyes alone, I don't think that's okay. I don't know. I don't like it. But on the other hand, it is what it is. It's a materialistic world. In fairness, yes. And I'd say in this story, Parrish, Simon, and Adelson did spend quite a bit of time trying to sell this painting to a museum. But unfortunately, it was just they could not find one to buy it. So... Yes. And I mean, that also tells me the fact that this painting went through a big struggle. I mean, it couldn't be sold at the beginning. Nobody wanted it, even restored. Okay. So at the end of the day, to me, the Louvre, you know, their refusal, that speaks well, for You it. have to consider too, spoiler alert, the French and the British do not tend to get along historically. And if the British have overextended themselves... And a Saudi prince, who is also a traditional friend of the British, comes along and says, hey, help my English friend get out of this jam he's put himself in. Every French person I know is going to say, huh, let me think about that. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's that too. Look, there's that too. We said it at the same time. Great minds think alike. But look, there's that too. But also I think when it comes to a potentially original painting by Leonardo da Vinci, I don't think the Louvre would be 
saying no if it was an olive. I I don't like I really don't like I trust the Louvre. Let me put it that way. They have nothing to benefit from here. They're the only people without some sort of financial interest in this painting. So yeah, exactly. They had no reason to care one way or another. Um, other than they could have made yeah, they could have made friends with the Saudi crown (laughs) prince. But other than that, they had no benefit from this painting. So yeah, there's they do have a little more objectivity in their favor uh, based on that. That's true. And the expertise as well. I mean, you know, if you're going to go to experts, the first place in the world about the painting, right? You're going to go to the Louvre. I mean, the French are good at a bunch of things, and some of them include art, uh, fashion, perfumes, and sex. Okay, so and all of that's those it. are in this story. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> we should go to Saudi Arabia and see the Salvatore Mundi for real. If MBS is ever going to put it in a museum, do we know? I mean, what was his plan with the painting, by the way, to just hang it on his yacht? No, there was a Louvre Abu Dhabi, and that was going to be the signature piece in that museum. But he got mad when the French would not uh, help him legitimize it. So he stuck it on his yacht and says, okay, fine, nobody gets to see it. Hmm. Okay, interesting. So I guess he wanted to use it. I, I kind of see his thinking behind it. I think he might have wanted to use it to anchor a whole museum around it, like the Louvre, right? What does everybody know about the Louvre, the Mona Lisa? And I think he wanted to do the same thing with the male Mona Lisa, Salvatore Mundi, right? So that he would attract a lot of tourists to that part of the world. Was the museum in like Abu Dhabi or like in Riyadh? Where was he? You said Abu Dhabi? Yes, the museum is in Abu Dhabi. I don't know that it's open yet. So this is all sort of up in the air because... That was the plan. Was because this the painting? Painting is up in yes, the air. Yes, <laughs> the painting is up in the air. So we all have to wait and see. In the meantime, we'll keep checking up on uh, former Epstein properties and see what we've. Please stop with Epstein. I don't want to hear that word anymore. Yeah, at this point, can we just go sit on the beach in Costa Rica instead? Well, <laughs> there's no escape. See, we'll run into more of his people there. They'll be with Yves Bouvier registering their shell companies and hiding their paintings in a bank vault or something. So (laughs) we're going to run into them there, too. Yeah. And look, we're going to have more art world stories and scams for you guys. There's one about the guy who went all the way back to myths of ancient Rome to create hype about his fake sculpture. So we're going to have probably a premium episode on that. And that guy even self-produced a fake documentary about himself and distributed it on Netflix. I that guy is absolutely he's crazier than Eve Bouvier by far. And what was the yeah. name of the documentary? Yeah, that guy is kind of giving it all away a bit in the title if you're clever enough to catch it. The title of the documentary is Treasures from the Wreck of the Unbelievable, which is <laughs> unbelievable, all right, because this did not happen. So Anyways, uh, he is an even crazier story than Leonardo's maybe fake, maybe authentic painting, because, I mean, if nothing else, at least the Salvatore Mundi that we're all arguing about in this case was made in roughly 1500, whereas Damien Hirst's sculptures were made about two years ago in his own little studio. So in any case... (laughs) 
Well, look, I must admit, though, being a shadowy art dealer skimming a few million dollars here and there from billionaires doesn't sound too bad. Maybe we missed our calling in life. <laughs> I mean, it's more glamorous than sitting in a closet recording a podcast, surely. Yeah, right? <laughs> okay, guys, well, I think that's all for now. Let us know what you think on social media. We are a dubious pod on whatever social platforms you prefer. And please, if you like us, recommend us to your friends and family. Or if you are the Prince of Monaco, please contact us directly with your inquiries. <laughs> yeah. But until then, we'll see you guys in the next episode. Thank you for listening. We love you. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>